Thank you for listening to our church podcast where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. Most of the sermons will be preached by our founding pastor, John Cole. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m. for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 55. Uh, This morning, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. Uh, Normally, when I preach, I do what's called expository preaching, where you take one text and you draw a few points from the one text. This morning, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to use several texts to teach one point. And so I'm going to give you uh, right now that point. And then I'm going to read Isaiah 55, 7. Hopefully you'll see where I'm getting it from. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about it. The, the, the main point of the sermon this morning is God always forgives repentant sinners. That is my hypothesis. Okay, and we'll read Isaiah 55, 7. I'm going to read that one more time. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. So that first half of the verse, that's the repentance side. And the rest of the verse says, He will have mercy upon him, speaking of God, and and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So the text says, If the wicked and unrighteous man will forsake his way and his thoughts and turn to the Lord, God will have mercy on him and abundantly pardon. In other words, God always forgives repentant sinners. That's my hypothesis. We'll be trying to prove that this morning. Before we do, I'd like to define two words within that thesis statement. Uh, And that is the word, uh, first, the word repentance, and then second, the word forgive. So what do we mean by these terms? Repentance is a word we use a lot in church, and we really don't use it outside of church. Uh, I I doubt that wherever you work, you hear somebody talking about repent very much, or uh, it's not something you're going to hear on the news. It's kind of a a churchy word. And so what happens with these types of um, Christian uh, lingo sometimes is we sort of have an idea of what it means, but it's a little bit fuzzy. Like if I were to ask you what repentance means, you might be able to give me somewhat of a definition, uh, but maybe you've never really thought about exactly how to define the word. So we're going to start by looking at the lexical definition. So if you were to look this up in a Greek lexicon, the word metanoia, uh, we would find out that the word in its most basic sense means to change your mind. Okay, it's, a, it's a turning of the mind. That's the simplest way to define repentance. I'm going to read for you a verse in, in 2 Corinthians 7 that I think helps us uh, understand a little bit more. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church here. He had written to them once before, and uh, he had really convicted them about their sin. He had, if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll find he's just blasting them for all sorts of sin that was in their lives. And so in the second letter... Uh, he writes this in, in 2 Corinthians 7, 9. He says, I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. Verse 10 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. So, so Paul says that after they had read his letter, uh, they sorrowed over their sin, and that sorrow uh, led them to repentance, which led them to salvation. Okay, so apparently there were many in the church of Corinth that were not saved. And if you read 1 Corinthians, you even see some hints of that. 
So, so Paul said they sorrowed to repentance. That godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. They were sorry. They were convicted of their sin. They, they had regret for sin. And that led them to repenting. So what we learn from this text about repentance is that prior to that change of mind that we call repentance, there must be a sorrow over sin. In other words, the, the first step in repenting of sin is to grieve or mourn over your sin. You don't have a nonchalant attitude about your sinfulness. If you do, you're not truly repenting and you won't be forgiven. Repentance begins with godly sorrow. It's an inward feeling of regret, even to the point of hatred for your sin. So the first thing I want to see is remorse for sin leads to repentance. Now, I'd like to differentiate a little bit here between godly sorrow that Paul talks about and a few uh, what I would call counterfeits. So if we say godly sorrow for sin is a prerequisite for genuine repentance, then we need to define what we mean by godly sorrow. And I think to, to help define this, I'm going to say what I, what I think godly sorrow is not. Okay, I don't think godly sorrow is being sorry that you got caught or sorry that you got in trouble or sorry that God's punishing you. I think it's actually being sorry that you sinned. So uh, to illustrate this, I grew up, some of you may have met my brother. I think, I think you guys may have met my brother uh, at my wedding. Tommy is uh, two years older than I am, and we grew up together, obviously. And uh, you won't be surprised to hear, I'm sure, that uh, me and my brother didn't always get along. If you have siblings uh, or, or if you have chi- kids that are siblings, you know that sometimes there is some tension there. And I remember many times as a kid, I would get in trouble for hitting my brother or saying something less than kind to him. Uh, and, and many times, you know, my parents would discipline me and I would be sorry that I did it, sort of. But, but if you were actually to pin it down, I wasn't sorry for what I did. I was sorry I got in trouble, right? I, and many times I was even more angry with my brother after I got in trouble. I wasn't sorry that I clocked him. I was sorry that I got caught. And I think this is, uh, this is not what Paul means by godly sorrow. A good biblical example of this, this kind of counterfeit sorrow, I think, is the story of Cain in Genesis 4. And uh, this story just teaches us sibling rivalry goes back a long ways. Okay, the, the first time the world had siblings, one killed the other. Just think about that. And so Cain kills Abel, and, and God comes to Cain after he's killed his brother, and he asks, where's Abel? And Cain gives the classic response, am I my brother's keeper? I I don't know where he is. And God confronts Cain for his sin and tells him he's going to be cursed now because he killed his brother. And after Cain hears what his punishment is, he says, my punishment is more than I can bear. He's not sorry that he killed his brother. He's sorry, he has remorse because his punishment is so severe. You don't see any regret whatsoever about what he's done. He just hates, he feels like it's unfair that God is, is punishing him like this. So godly sorrow is truly hating the sin you've committed. And remorse for sin leads to repentance or a change of mind. You decide to turn from doing this to something else. You stop walking this way, you turn and go in the other direction. That's repentance. It's a mental choice. It's in the mind that you repent. So you experience sorrow, remorse over sin. You turn in your heart. Uh, But I want to look a little bit at at the back end of that. We've looked at the front end of repentance, which is remorse. But what are the results of repentance? And I want to ask the question, can you repent without there being a subsequent change in your actions? 
Can you sorrow over sin and change your mind and turn from sin to follow God in your heart and not have that result in a change in your behavior? And so we're going to start here in Luke chapter 3. This is uh, John the Baptist speaking. He says to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, this is verse 7 of Luke 3, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? uh, Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. And begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. He that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? He said unto them, Do violence to no man neither accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So, so the key phrase, I think, in that passage is, bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. Meaning, uh, repentance, yes, is a mental decision, but it's not true repentance if you don't actually change your behavior. Uh, Acts 26.20, Paul says, or I'm sorry, Luke writes that, uh, but it says, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. So there are works that follow true repentance from sin to God. One more example I, I want to show is Matthew 21. Jesus tells a parable that I think explains repentance very well. He says that a father told two sons to go into a field and work. And uh, the the first son said, okay, I'm going to go. And then he didn't. And the second son said, I'm not going in the field to work. But afterward, it says he repented. And it uses the word metanoia. He repented. He changed his mind. And he went into the field to work. So as a result of the son's changed mind, an action took place. He said at first, I'm not going to work in the field. And then after he repented, he went and worked in the field. So you see there that true repentance results in a change. It's not just a mental decision. That that, that is what the root word repent means. But always following repentance is a change in behavior. In other words, you haven't truly repented of sin if you continue in that sin. Remorse for sin is the first step. Repentance in the heart follows. And then flowing from that repentance is a change in behavior. True repentance of the heart will necessarily result in a change in actions. So when we say that God always forgives repentant sinners, again, that's my thesis statement, I want to make clear that the repentance I'm talking about is that which starts internally and works out into your life. It's not a nonchalant tip of the hat to God where you say, I'm sorry, God, and then go on living however you want. True repentance is a transformation of the heart that results in a transformation of life. Now, the second word I want us to define quickly is the word forgive. Specifically here, uh, what do we mean by God's forgiveness? Because again, the thesis statement is God always forgives repentant sinners. So what does that look like? And uh, you won't be surprised to find that God's repentance is not like our, or uh, God's forgiveness, excuse me, is not like our forgiveness. I want to look at three verses here. Uh, And I'll read these to you. Psalm 103, verse 12. You're familiar with these. It says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And uh, that's how the psalmist describes the forgiveness of God, that he removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Now, how far exactly 
is the east from the west. And uh, this has been pointed out to me before that if you go north far enough in the globe, you get to the North Pole. And when you're at the North Pole, no matter what step you take, no matter what direction you go, you're going south. But that doesn't happen with east and west. If you go east and you keep going east around the globe, there's no point at which you're ever going west. East and west are always opposites. They're as far apart as possible. And that is how God has removed our transgressions from us. In other words, when God forgives, he does so completely. Isaiah 45 verse, uh, 43 verse 25 says, I, even I, this is God speaking, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. Jeremiah 31, 34 says something similar. He says, I, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So the Bible says when God forgives us of our sins, he also forgets our sins. He purposefully chooses to not remember them. And that's always been confusing to me, and I'm not sure I, I understand it now. If God has infinite knowledge, he knows everything, how can he forget my sin? Like, surely he still knows what I did. Like, he can't actually forget, right? And I, I again, I don't know exactly how to answer that, but I do know it means at least this much. When God forgives our sins, he, he'll never bring it up again. You know that relative that you have? It might be your mom, might be a spouse, might be somebody that always seems to remember every little thing you've ever done wrong. And I think all of us are blessed to have this person in our life, right? And it's like they have a list running of every sin we've ever committed. And then every time an argument comes up, they read through the list, right? When God forgives, he burns the list. It's gone. He throws it in the depths of the sea. And if that's not far enough, he says he'll remove it as far as the east is from the west. In other words, if, if God's forgiven you of sin, he's not going to bring it back up. He doesn't hold it against you anymore. So that's one part of not remembering sin. But I think there's another layer to this uh, that, I, that, I th- that I find helpful. Um, what does it mean to forget a sin someone's committed against you. And the best example I could think of is, have you ever had someone borrow something from you and not return it, right? They're still borrowing it. It's been 10 years. Uh, or somebody, somebody borrowed money from you and they promised you they're going to repay it and it just hasn't happened yet. What happens every time you see them or every time you hear their name? You instantly think about, that guy owes me 20 bucks or that guy still has my book from college or whatever, Every time you see them, you can't be in a room with them without instantly thinking about what they've done against you. And this is what God does not do to us. I think sometimes I take that mentality into my relationship with God. So I've sinned, I've repented, I've asked for God's forgiveness. But now it's, it's difficult for me to pray because I feel like although God has forgiven me, he's still mad at me. I feel like when I try to talk to God, there's still this thought in the back of his mind reminding him of what I've done against him. And according to the Bible, uh, the instant God forgave me of that sin, it vanished out of the mind of God, never to return again. When God forgives us, he also forgets our sins. He chooses not to remember them. I don't have to fear that God's still mad at me over something I've repented of. 
I sometimes wonder when, when I come to God after I've repented and I ask for forgiveness again, I find myself apologizing again, confessing sin again. I sometimes wonder if God is thinking and it to, as if he could speak to me saying, well, what are you talking about? What sin are you talking about? I already forgave you for that. It's gone. Whatever it means uh, for God to forget sin, I, I think it means that he forgives us completely. He doesn't hold these things against us. He doesn't bring it back up. And he doesn't think about that every time we come to him. When God forgives us, he forgives us completely. So God always forgives repentant sinners. We've defined repentance and God's forgiveness, and now the the rest of our time, we're basically going to be considering the word always in my hypothesis. Is it true that God always forgives repentant sinners? Are there some sinners that God won't forgive even if they repent? Are there some sins, certain sins that are just so wicked, there's no way God can forgive them? We're going to consider six examples in the Bible that I think will help answer these questions. You can turn to these passages if you'd like, or I can just summarize them for you, whatever you want to do. Uh, the first one we're going to go to is Second Chronicles chapter 33. This is the story of King Manasseh. And uh, he's not a very well-known king, but he began to reign when he was 12 years old, and he was king over Judah for 55 years. The Bible says that Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Bible says he did according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had driven out of the land. Manasseh rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. Manasseh built altars to Baal, a false god, and and Manasseh worshipped the stars. He built altars to them. Manasseh also made his children pass through the fire. This was a common practice. Uh, to the god Molech, that they would burn their children and and kill them. Uh, Manasseh used fortune-telling, omens, sorcery. He dealt with witches and wizards. This is all in 2 Chronicles 33. And in verse 6, we have this summary statement. It says, He wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Manasseh, later in the chapter, he goes on to build an idol, and he he puts it in the temple, in in the house that's supposed to be a place of worship to the true God. He puts an idol there. Uh, Verse 9 says that Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed. Verse 10 says that the Lord spoke to Manasseh, to his people, but they refused to listen to him. So God sent judgment finally. The king of Assyria captured Manasseh. He bound him in chains and carried him off to Babylon. And then... When Manasseh was in affliction, the text says, he sought the Lord and humbled himself greatly before God and prayed to him. And God heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. So despite all the wickedness that Manasseh had done, Manasseh repented and God forgave him because God always forgives repentant sinners. The next person I want to talk about is King Ahab. You've heard of him, likely. He's a notorious king in the Old Testament. His story begins in 1 Kings 16, and it goes throughout uh, chapter 21. There were many bad kings who reigned over Israel. If you read the book of uh, Kings or Chronicles, you'll find that uh, about half the kings of Judah were bad, and almost all the kings of Israel were bad, the the separation of kingdoms there. But but Ahab took the cake. Okay, First Kings 16 says that Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Verse 31 says that not only did he walk in the sins of Jeroboam, but he also took Jezebel to be his wife. 
And if you know anything about Jezebel, if there's anyone in the Bible more wicked than Ahab, it was probably his wife. He served Baal and worshipped him. He built altars to Baal. And verse 33 of uh, of 1 Kings 16 says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. He was an evil man with an evil wife. And Ahab is the one, you, uh, you remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel? Ahab's the one who faced off against the prophet of God, Elijah, and, and Elijah calls fire down from heaven. And then when Jezebel hears about this, she decides that she's going to hunt down Elijah and kill him. In chapter 21, Ahab uh, sees a vineyard that he wants, and he tries to buy it from Naboth. And Naboth explains to Ahab that the vineyard's his inheritance. It's not for sale. It's been passed down through his family for generations. So Ahab's upset that he's not getting this vineyard that he wants. He tells his wife Jezebel about it. Jezebel says, don't worry, I'll get it for you. And she sends two witnesses to lie about Naboth, the, the vineyard owner, and they carry him out and they stone him. So after they've killed Naboth, Ahab takes the vineyard for himself. God wasn't too pleased with Ahab killing a man for his vineyard, his family farm, basically. So God sends Elijah to Ahab to tell him he's going to kill Ahab and all his family. He's going to wipe them all out because God has been so provoked to anger and because uh, Ahab has made Israel to sin. Verse 25 of 1 Kings 21 says of Ahab, There was none like unto Ahab which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord. He did very abominably in following idols. This is just a way of saying Ahab was the worst of the worst. He sold himself to to do wickedness. He sold his soul to the devil, we might say. God was incredibly angry with Ahab. No king had ever provoked God to anger like this guy did. And then a strange thing happens in verse 27. After Elijah has prophesied against Ahab and his family, he said, we're going to wipe you all out, Ahab humbled himself and fasted. And the very next verse says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days. Ahab repented, and God forgave him. Because God always forgives repentant sinners. The next person I want to talk about is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He's a famous bad guy in the Bible. His story is told in the book of Daniel. This is the same guy who attacked Jerusalem. He took all of the the vessels out of the temple and he brought them to the house of his god, Dagon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar also carried off children like Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You might know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar made a golden image and commanded everyone to come worship the image. And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to, Nebuchadnezzar threw them in a fiery furnace. Then one day, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, and he said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, he's just a proud guy. And while Nebuchadnezzar was speaking these words, God made him like an animal. The Bible says he made him like a beast of the field. Nebuchadnezzar ate grass like an ox. His hair grew like feathers and his nails were like claws. He became a, God somehow transformed him into an animalistic type creature. Nebuchadnezzar lived in the field like an animal until one day he repented. He lifted his eyes to heaven, acknowledging God as the one 
who is the king of kings, and his reason returned to him. And he praises God. You may not know this, Nebuchadnezzar actually writes part of the book of Daniel. If you read chapter 4, it starts out uh, by saying this is Nebuchadnezzar writing. And throughout the chapter, he tells his story. And at the end, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar certainly knew about God's ability to humble proud people. He probably experienced that in a way that no one else ever has. Nebuchadnezzar repented and God forgave him because God always forgives repentant sinners. As I was preparing this sermon, I thought of two books of the Bible that are basically about this this statement that God always forgives repentant sinners. The first one is the book of Judges. Uh, If you've ever read Judges, you find that over and over again, seven times actually, there's this cycle where Israel sins and God sends judgment, and then Israel repents, and God forgives them and brings them back into the land and wipes out their enemies. And then a few years later, they go back and sin again. It's just over and over and over, it's happening. The book of Jonah was the second book that I thought of as as a test example of God's forgiveness. And it's interesting in the book of Jonah because not only is God forgiving the wicked Ninevites of their sin after they repent, but he's also forgiving the disobedient prophet who is supposed to go preach to them. So the book of Jonah begins with God telling Jonah to go to Nineveh and cry against it for their wickedness. Jonah refused, and instead of uh, going to Nineveh, he goes to Tarshish, the opposite direction. God sends a storm, and Jonah is tossed into the sea and swallowed by a fish. And it takes three days. This is astounding to me. Jonah is in the belly of this fish for three days before he finally prays and repents. I mean, can you imagine? Three days and three nights. Your stomach acids and all, all the nasty smells and everything. And it's not like the VeggieTales version where he's, you know, got a chair and people are singing. No, he's, he's constricted in this stomach. Like, this was not comfortable. And yet it took him three days before he prays to God and repents. So uh, as soon as he repents, you find at the end of chapter 3 that God speaks to the, the fish and tells him to spit Jonah out, and he does. Jonah repented and God forgave him because God always forgives repentant sinners. Now, before we're too harsh on Jonah, he had a good reason to dislike the Ninevites. Okay, they were wicked people. And again, uh, we're trying to devegetate this story a little bit. The VeggieTales version of slapping fishes was not exactly the Ninevites. They were wicked, ruthless people. This, the city of Nineveh was founded by Nimrod, uh, Noah's great grandson. You find that in the book of Genesis. And by the time of the book of Jonah, Nineveh was a huge city. This, this is pointed out at least three times in the book of Jonah, how large the city was. The Ninevites were known for their cruelty. Nahum calls Nineveh a city of bloodshed. The Ninevites were notorious for amputating hands and feet, gouging out eyes, and skinning alive their captives. They were wicked people. It's no wonder Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, either for fear of his life Or, as he says in chapter 4, Jonah didn't consider the Ninevites worthy of God's forgiveness. He felt like they didn't deserve God's grace. And, of course, that's missing the point of exactly what grace is. If grace was deserved, it wouldn't be grace. It would be justice. We call it grace because we don't deserve it. So Jonah, after he spit out of the fish, he goes to Nineveh. He preaches his eight-word sermon. It's actually five words in Hebrew. He says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the Ninevites repented. Verse 5 of uh, Jonah chapter 3 says that 
The people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast. The king proclaimed a fast throughout the whole land and said, No human or animal is to eat or drink. The Ninevite king commands the people in verse 8 to cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn away from his fierce anger? This is the king of the Ninevites, these wicked people, humbling himself and challenging the people to beg God for his forgiveness. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do to them, and he did it not. So the Ninevites repented, and God forgave him or forgave them, because God always forgives repentant sinners. I want us to consider one more example this morning. And this is one of the most infamous stories of sin in the Bible. This is the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 records the story how King David, he's, uh, he goes onto his roof one night, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. David asks who the woman was, and his servant told him that it was Bathsheba, the daughter of a lion, this is important, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he's told straight up that this is Eliam's daughter and Uriah's uh, wife. Bathsheba sent for, I'm sorry, David sent for Bathsheba and he got her pregnant. And to cover his sin, David had Uriah come home from war, hoping that Uriah would go home to Bathsheba. And then when the child was born, Uriah would just assume that it was his. But Uriah refused, and instead he slept outside on the, on the steps of the palace with the slaves. He said, Uriah said that it wasn't right for him to go home and enjoy himself while his fellow soldiers were at war, sleeping in tents. The next night, David decides to get Uriah drunk, hoping that when he's intoxicated, maybe he'll go home to his wife and cover up this sin, and Uriah again refuses. Even when Uriah is drunk, he displays higher morals than sober David did, which is an interesting thing to notice. David saw that the only way to cover his sin was to have Uriah killed and then take Bathsheba to be his wife, and that's exactly what David does. David killed Uriah and took his wife. By the way, we find out in in 2 Samuel 23, the list of David's mighty men. This was a group of David's most loyal protectors. They risked their life to save David from Saul when Saul was chasing David around. These were the men that were David's friends that protected him from from death. These men assisted David and, and helped to establish him as king. And on this list of David's mighty men, we find two interesting names. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, that's Bathsheba's father, and Uriah the Hittite. The man that David had killed in order to take his wife and cover his sin, that man was one of the ones who defended David and risked his life to serve him. He was one of David's most loyal companions, and David killed him for his wife. David knowingly slept with his wife. Again, remember, the servant told him, as soon as he asked, who is that woman? When he first saw her bathing, the servant said, oh, that's Uriah's wife. He knew who this was. He knew Uriah. He knew Eliam. They were some of his best closest companions. Uh, He also knew Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel. This was uh, David's counselor in war. These were all very close companions of David. And it just makes the sin seem even more terrible, that he sinned against so many people that did so much for him. Nathan the prophet comes to David and confronts him of his sin. He tells him, God knows exactly what you did, and you're going to be judged for it. And David says in 2 Samuel 12, 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. 
David repented, and God forgave him. Because God always forgives repentant sinners. So is there a sin God won't forgive? Is there ever a time when someone repents, truly repents, and God refuses to forgive them? I think the answer is clear in Scripture, no. God always forgives repentant sinners. Uh, if you think God's ability to forgive is, uh, is limited, I want you to hear what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Speaking of homosexuals. Uh, neither thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you've been washed, you are sanctified, and you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So apparently there were some in the church of Corinth who were committing terrible sins, uh, sexual sins, lying, thieves, drunkards, extortioners, and these were all forgiven by God's grace. They've all been washed. They'd, they'd all been saved. God always forgives repentant sinners. In conclusion this morning, I want us to turn to one more passage of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, turn to Micah chapter 7. This probably isn't a book you uh, look at too often, but if you go to Jonah and turn right a couple pages, you'll be there. It's Micah chapter 7. I thought for a while about how I was going to end this sermon because uh, it's not always a clear application to a sermon that you teach. And I, I was reminded of a quote by one of my favorite preachers. He said, sometimes uh, a sermon's best application is, behold your God. And that's kind of what I want to do this morning. I want us to read, in conclusion, Micah chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 18. Micah seven eighteen says, Who is a God like unto thee? that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.